We study billionaires, and this is episode 65 of The Investor's Podcast. Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is The Investor's Podcast. They'll read the books and summarize the lessons. They'll test the waters and tell you when it's cold. They'll give you actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson. Hey, how's everybody doing out there? This is Preston Pish, and I'm your host for The Investor's Podcast. And as usual, I'm accompanied by my co-host, Stig Broderson, out in Denmark. Today, we're doing a book, and the name of the book is Irrational Exuberance. And this book was written by Robert Schiller. And for many people in the econ, you're probably very familiar with Robert Schiller. He's a professor out at Yale University, just really renowned for his Cape-Schiller ratio that we talk about on the show a lot. But he wrote this book called Irrational Exuberance. He, this book came out right around 2000. Isn't that right, Stig? Yeah, just before the uh, burst of the dot-com bubble. Okay. So right before the burst of the dot-com bubble, he came out with this book. And the reason that we're reading this book is because Wilbur Ross, who's a billionaire here in the US, I think his net worth's around $2.9 billion. He's the one who has endorsed this book. And so that's why we pulled it out. And we are also curious to read it for ourselves because we talk about the Schiller ratio so much on the show as a metric for valuing where the market's at. So we're going to get to that later on in the show. First, what we're going to be talking about, and this is at the request of many of our listeners, they want us to talk about the current market conditions before we do our book review. So I've assembled a list of a couple different things to talk about, and I'm sure Stig has some things that he wants to talk about. So just between the two of us, we haven't talked about any of this stuff because <laughs> our time is pretty limited together. Usually when Stig and I are talking, it's only whenever we're recording anymore. So Stig and I have not talked about this on email or anything. I have no idea what he's going to say. So this is a, just a straight, candid conversation between the two of us on where we think things are at. And just so you know, right now it's the 7th of December, 2015. So if you're listening to this, this probably won't even be released until the middle to the end of December after the Fed's going to make their decision on what they're doing. So it's going to be really interesting to hear our thoughts after the fact on what's going on. So just so everyone knows, 7th of December is when we are having this conversation. So, Stig, let's open this up. Let's ease into this before we get to that Fed discussion. And let's talk first about, um, I have a real quick topic about China, two different things on China. First, their market seems to be coming back a little bit of a recovery from where it was at in August. In August, it was sitting at about 2,900. And now here at the 7th of December, it's sitting at about 3,500. So it's gone through about a 10% growth or maybe a little bit more from their, you know, their big meltdown there in the summer. So any thoughts on that or where you think that that might be going? You know, Preston, I think we covered this a few times. Sometimes when you say macroeconomic things to me, where just like China falls into that category, even though we talk about the stock market, sometimes you just say, oh, Preston, that's in the too hard pile. <laughs> no, but it's, it's definitely a bad answer for me to give because like if you're guessing, uh, which Yellow, for instance, is doing this book, you, you have to be really courageous because you can be wrong. And it's, it's probably just too easy for me to say, I don't know, but I literally don't know what's going to happen with China. I think Things still looks ugly over there and whether or not you'll see a short rebound or a small rebound these days, I still don't want to be invested over there. I don't know what you what you think. Yeah, I have the same opinion. So I have no idea what that, that what that means. I just know that it's somewhat stabilized from where it was at. And I'm a little hesitant to get back in there. Most of it comes down to the accounting that takes place over there and whether I trust it or not. 
I think long term, over the next 10, 15, 20 years, I think China is going to do fairly well. But in this short amount of time, like in the next couple months or whatever, there's a 10%, 15% increase from August. I, I have no idea what that means. I just know that it's somewhat stabilized. And I know there's been an enormous, unprecedented amount of government interference in order to stabilize that price. So what does that mean? And that's one of the reasons I'm staying away as well. The other thing that I wanted to highlight on China, though, was their RMB, their currency, was added into the IMF's basket of currencies. And I think that this is a really important thing to talk about. For everyone out there, if you don't know what any of that means, what I just said, you've got the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. And what the International Monetary Fund does is it has a basket of currencies, and they've taken that basket of currencies to create their own currency. So you've got fiat currencies on top of fiat currencies is what this is. <laughs> but what they've done is they've taken the most dominant currencies around the world. The U.S. dollar was a very high composition of this. you got the, the U.K. currency. you got the euro in this uh, basket of, of SDRs. SDR stands for Special Drawing Rights. And that's a currency in itself. Now, this isn't a currency that, you know, if you go to the bank and say, hey, I want some SDRs, you're not going to be able to get it. What this is, is the IMF basically lends their SDRs and they lend their currency, which is basically, if you were looking at it from a hierarchy, the SDR would sit on top and then you'd have this basket of US dollars and whatnot beneath that. So they would lend this out to emerging market countries that might need the money, things like that. That's why the IMF was set up. And we could get into the whole history of the IMF and this is a very long discussion, so I'm going to try to make this as short as possible and kind of simplify it as much as possible. But that basket of currencies, China's RMB was not included in it. When did they make this decision? Like two weeks ago, Stig? Yeah, it's not too long ago now. Yeah, so about two weeks ago, the IMF finally made the decision that they were going to allow the RMB, the Chinese RMB, into their basket of currencies. I don't remember the composition. I want to say it was like 15%. Is that right? You know, yeah, you know. I'm looking at some numbers here. It says just short of 11%. And just for comparison, the dollar is 42% and the euro is 31%. So the idea here is like right now, we got the dollar really strong. So that's adding value to the SDR because it's a component, a subcomponent of it. Now, if let's say the dollar starts to weaken and then maybe the euro gets stronger, say that starts to reverse itself which I don't see happening here in the short term. But let's just say that that starts reversing itself. That would basically offset and the value of that SDR would be remain to be unchanged, which is the, you know, the higher level currency that oversees all these baskets underneath of it. So you would see that offset basically the SDR wouldn't change value. So the idea is if all these central banks around the world are printing through the nose and they're devaluing altogether, the SDR is really not going to change in value at all if that SDR is tracking all the main currencies in the world. So that's a discussion that's what's what's really interesting about that. So you're probably saying, so what? <laughs> China's currency is now an SDR or in the SDR. So what that means is that China's really kind of emerging as a global power here. The IMF would not be including their currency in this basket if it didn't have some buying power and some staying power. So what you're seeing is that this RMB is now emerging as a global currency, which we haven't seen in the past. And I think that that says a lot about the direction that maybe the Chinese economy is going. So, uh, Stig, any thoughts on this RMB, IMF, SDR? Do we got any other acronyms we can throw out there for people? people? <laughs> yeah, you know. Preston, in a way, I was surprised. In a way, I 
wouldn't surprise at all because obviously like China with the size of the economy, they should be a part of that basket. But it's really hard to find a currency that is manipulated as the Chinese currency. So I was also thinking they probably wouldn't include it because it would simply not be stable enough. Also because it's tied so much to the dollar and what they're doing in America. So I was thinking they're probably not going to do that. This is IMF. The whole thing about IMF is to bring stability to the financial system of the world. So inherently, they should not look at China, but still they are. I think this is just a new world order that we're seeing in uh, in currencies right now, and perhaps it's transition. I don't know, Preston, would you be surprised to see the dollar be less significant world currency in years to come? That's a really hard one. I think in the immediate term, in the next year, definitely not. I think the dollar is going to continue to do extremely well over the next coming, let's call it the next four months. I think the dollar is going to do really well. But after that, that's hard to say. I think that it is going to definitely have a turn here in the future within about a year from now. I think the dollar is going to eventually have a turn. But for the time being, I think that it's definitely the place to be these days. Over the next 10, 20 years, it's really hard to see what happens out of China. I think that like we had previously discussed, the big concern is government intervention. At what level is that occurring? If you pull back the the blinds and take a look at their books, because they don't have like their SEC that's really kind of regulating them at the level that you see in the US or anywhere else in the world for that matter. So that's where I'm concerned as an American. It's just a lack of knowledge. I don't think that it's anything more than my lack of understanding of how they operate over there. One thing I really want to talk about is what's happening in Europe right now, because what the world has probably been talking about, like whenever you hear this, uh, is that what Danielle would do with the, uh, with the Fed and the interest rate. And so what I want to talk about is what we're doing here in Europe, what ECB, the European Central Bank, is doing. And just to give you some context into, in terms of what the deposit rate here is, and the way to think about that is what type of returns can banks achieve whenever they are depositing with the ECB. And so if that rate would be high, the ECB would not provide banks with that incentive to lend that money out to, uh, to customers because they will get a high return having an ECB. But right now, we see a negative interest rate, and it's even more negative now than it was a week ago. So what that means is that they really want to give banks an incentive to lend out money to really spark growth. So basically, banks are paying money to have them stored at ECB right now. And this is not unprecedented, but it's rare that you see such negative interest rates that we see here in Europe. And what is even more interesting is that Drahi, which is the uh, chairman of ECB, he has also extended the quantitative easing. It should be stopped here in September 2016, but he ex- extended that with six months. So we are right now here in Europe, we are running the, uh, the program to uh, March 2017. And that is 60 billion euros bought back from banks every month right now. So that's, that's really significant. And this is a really interesting concept. We talked about quantitative easing before. And just to give you a quick reminder, basically that is ECB rearranging the balance sheets for European banks. So basically they're providing reserves instead of the bonds that banks are holding right now. And that is all in the hope that banks will start lending out, generating more credit and spark growth. But so far, it hasn't happened. Preston, I see you have, you have definitely have an interesting comment to that. No, I just... I want to talk about quantitative easing real fast and how much I think that it's just 
maybe not the best mechanism to induce spending. And I mean, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to add liquidity to the system. And they are. I mean, it's absolutely having an impact. It's just not flowing through all the channels. And I I think that's my issue. So if you're Joe Schmo in town XYZ in the U.S., you're not seeing that money flow through your pocket. I guess my concern with quantitative easing is it's the wrong filtering mechanism. You need something that basically goes through all the people within whatever region it is that's their country that's executing this quantitative easing instead of just interacting with some major bank and buying back all the bonds on their balance sheet and providing liquidity that way because it's basically just coming into the system at the very top level of whoever owns that company. That's my concern. So like, why don't we take this approach where you know everyone files their taxes at the end of the year? Why don't you do this approach where you're providing liquidity through the system through all these people that are filing their taxes by you know providing refunds of some sort and flowing the money that way so that it flows through the entire breadth of the population of that country? That's where I think they're making the big mistake here. If they need to provide liquidity, which is really kind of the issue here, I think they need to go about it in multiple directions. And I think they really need to focus more in the direction of getting it through all the population. And I I just don't know enough about it. I haven't done enough research to speak more intelligently on it, but I think that that's where they're making the mistake. Yeah. And the way to think about quantitative easing is also that the liquidity that is provided uh, because banks have more liquidity, it's not the same as society will benefit from that. Because if there is not any creditworthy customers that are willing to borrow money, it really doesn't matter. Like banks can be flooded with cash, but if you don't want to lend it out, and they won't if they, I mean, they don't want to lend out to anyone who just say, hey, I need a loan. It has to be creditworthy. Then nothing is really happening. And that is what you have seen in Japan for so long now. It's not enough that you put out cash in the society, if no one's going to spend it, if no one is going to borrow it and start investing it. And I think that's, you can't just force that. And I think you just see the same pattern in Europe as in the US is that you might see a soaring stock market, but you don't see the real growth in society from these initiatives. And I think that's concerning because that's what leads to bubbles. So real fast on the Japan, since you mentioned that. So back in August, the Japanese market, and this is, I think when we first started talking about this, the Japanese market was at 20.5K on their index. Now they're down at 19.6. So it's had a little bit of a pullback, not much, about a 5% pullback. But I do want to say that on the 16th of November, Japan has officially slipped back into a recession. That's the fourth time they've been in a recession in the last five years. So we've said it before. We think you should stay away. The P.E. ratios over there in Japan are very appetizing. Let me tell you, they're like at a 10, which means you might be able to get a 10% return. My concern is with the currency. I think they've got major, major concerns with that currency over there. And I think that that might be why you're seeing such a low P.E. in Japan, that I'm staying away. I am not getting lured in over there. Let me tell you, I'm staying away from that market. And Stig's nodding his head that he's doing the exact same. Yeah, I'm definitely not looking at Japan. If you look at the parities, which is also a concept that we touched upon a few times, it might look like the yen is undervalued. So that would actually say that you should start investing in the Nikkei index. But still, that's not a game that I play. I usually don't play on currencies. So, But that was just an interesting observation I had with a colleague the other day that was doing some model forecasting on currencies. So um I don't know. I definitely don't want to say that you should start uh, investing in yen, but the paratists might suggest that over the long term, but that's a long time when you talk about currencies. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover Sport leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. The last thing that we want to talk about on the current events, I'm curious to hear Stig's thoughts on what the Fed's going to do on the 15th. Now, here's the thing. Like I said, people are going to be listening to this after we already know what happened. So let's just see how wrong we can be. We have no idea what's going to happen, but we're going to make some guesses here so everyone can laugh at our expense if we're right or wrong. So my opinion is that they are going to raise rates. I think they're going to change the federal funds rate by 25 basis points. And that's it. I'm not going to say anything else. Now, I want to hear Stig's prediction. I think you might be right. Also, with the new job report that just came out, that was really positive. So yes, raising rates would probably be the right time. And now they have been talking about it for so long that the market almost expects that. So perhaps it was like a strategy, a very cautious strategy that they were applying for not to give any shocks in the financial markets. So I think I'm with you on this one, Preston. I can tell you one thing. If they don't raise rates, I cannot wait to see what the reason is. Because, I mean, they've painted themselves in the corner. They said that 
you know, they had to have international stability, all these other things. And I think that they've got that since that last report. So we'll see what happens. So the last thing I want to talk about is an article by Husband. I saw this really interesting article here the other day because Preston was actually sharing this article over LinkedIn. That's sometimes how we communicate and, and exchange information. So, that's how we usually communicate. That's usually how <laughs> communicate. Whenever I see Preston is, has uploaded something or shared something on LinkedIn. And it was really interesting because he was saying that the market valuation today is so high that he was expecting a 1% annual return over the next 12 years. And so since that will also include dividends, if you just look at the index, you might see a declining index from where we are today and the next 12 years. And he might be saying, well, you might think that this is impossible, that we haven't seen this before, but look at 2000. It took 12 years in 2000 before the market really rebounded. And I think that's the best handoff to give to Irrational Exuberance, which was originally written just before the burst of the dot-com bubble. I just think I want to leave you with that. I don't know if he's right or wrong, but that is how what he predicts. Like, this is the new 2000. Just my thoughts on Hussman real fast. So I love his writing. I really enjoy reading everything that Dr. Hussman writes. And we'll have a link to this in our show notes in case you haven't seen anything that he's written before. He's very analytical. He really understands market valuations really well. You can tell all that in his writing and his research and things like that. Now, with all that said, his performance over the last like six or seven years in his own fund has been very poor relative to the market. He has done very badly. Now, he hasn't lost money, but he really hasn't gained money either. So I think that that's a really important highlight for people to realize that when the government was doing all this quantitative easing, he was not buying it. He was basically sitting on the sidelines, just protecting his principal and really missed this entire growth in the market over the last six years. That's important to highlight. And I think people should know that. But with all that said, I still thoroughly enjoy his writing. I think he definitely knows what he's talking about. And he's very good at laying out market valuations in a broader sense. Real quick, I want to go back to this Fed decision and potentially the impact of what would happen. So let's just say that the Fed does raise rates. Okay, If that does happen, which we don't know at this point, and you as the listener right now actually know what happened, but if the Fed raises rates, I think that the impact is obviously the dollar is going to get stronger relative to all the other currencies. I think that that's going to be bad for US businesses. It's going to be much, much harder for them to compete in the global economy if the dollar gets stronger. I think that that's going to lead to earnings power and margins to decrease in the United States market. I also think that high yield bonds are going to really start to go through the roof because I think that all these emerging markets that have a lot of dollar denominated debt are going to have a harder time to repay their debt. I think that uh, the fact that the European market is easing in combination with the U.S. market tightening is only going to make that strength of the dollar even more dramatic. I think that you have the potential to see oil prices actually potentially go down. I think that this is a hard one to forecast, and I think this one's going to be a hard one to call. But I think that you're going to potentially see oil even go lower when the dollar could potentially strengthen if the central banks decide to tighten more. I think you're getting to a real close breaking point with all this oil stuff and these commodities. I'm watching this very closely. I am sitting on my hands when it comes to the oil market. I have a lot of people asking me what my opinion is. But as of 7 December, I still have not entered into the oil market yet. But I'm telling you, it's getting very close and I'm watching this thing like a hawk and I'm getting very tempted to start diving in. 
So with all that said, Stig just gave me the thumbs up like, hey, just let's get going here, dude. (laughs) (laughs) So with that said, let's talk about the book that we read, Irrational Exuberance. This was a very good book, but I guess I didn't like the writing style. I'll be honest with you. The content was very good. Like what he's talking about uh, is obviously, I mean, he's this guy's obviously brilliant. Don't get me wrong. But I was not really a big fan of the writing style. It was a little dry. Very good points were made in the book. I guess just the way that they were presented was the where I kind of struggled with it. And it didn't help that we were uh, reading Liar's Poker at the same time, which that book is highly entertaining. So I was reading this one and Liar's Poker simultaneously. I was basically swapping back and forth between books. And I think it made this one a little bit more boring as I was reading it because Liar's Poker, which we're going to talk about, not the next episode, maybe the episode after that, was very entertaining. That's going to be a fun conversation. But anyway, so let's jump into some of the key points that we pulled out of this book real fast before we start doing this. This is where this book and the, the name of this book really came from. So back in 1996, I believe it was, Alan Greenspan, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, made a speech titled The Challenge of Central Banking in a Democratic Society. And this was the quote from his speech back in 1996. He said, clearly, sustained low inflation implies less uncertainty about the future. The lower risk premiums imply higher prices of stocks and other earning assets. We can see that the inverse relationship exhibited by price to earnings ratios and the rate of inflation in the past. But how do we know when irrational exuberance has unduly escalated asset values, which then become subject to unexpected and prolonged contractions as they have in Japan over the past decade? So basically what he's talking about here in 1996, he's saying inflation keeps going down and it has since the early 1980s, whenever Volcker basically put an end to the insane inflation rate. And as that's coming down, he's basically seeing a very similar thing playing out to what was happening in Japan. And if you know your history for Japan back in 1990s, whenever the market in Japan basically exploded and and had trouble ever since. So he's basically saying at this point, Alan Greenspan is is saying, we're seeing the same thing happen here. As interest rates go down, that's going to push asset prices up. And how do we know where the top of this irrational exuberance is as those interest rates continue to push lower? That's what he's saying in that very fetish (laughs) speaking paragraph that I just read, which makes people's eyes glaze over. That was pretty much the premise of the book. That's where Robert Schiller wanted to open up this irrational exuberance, this discussion of growth basically continuing to go down, inflation decreasing, which then pushes up interest rates. So whenever you go to our intrinsic value calculator on the Buffett's Books website and you play around with that a little bit and you adjust the interest rate, which is how you're comparing the value of the business to, and you push that interest rate lower and lower and lower, what happens to the market price of your asset? So if you don't know the answer, I'd highly recommend that you go to our website and you play around with this thing and see what happens. But what happens when you lower that interest rate that you're comparing it to, the market price and the intrinsic value goes up. It goes higher. So when we think about this in a broader context, and you're talking about the market in general, and interest rates are continuing to go down and down and down. And like Japan, they're at 0%. They've been there for like five to 10 years. They haven't moved. When they bottom out at 0% and everything's getting polarized at 0%, it pushes asset prices through the roof because it's basically saying, I will buy this asset at a 1% return. Well, when you do that, it pushes the price super high. 
Now, let's say that we were using 20% or, or a better example would probably be 16% back in the 1980s. The price that you would pay for that is much lower because the price and the, and the yield are completely inversely proportional, just like a bond. So that's an important concept for people to understand before we go much further, because that's really the premise of the book. And that's what Schiller's really getting at is what is causing this? What is causing this churn and what's going to be the impact in the future? So um, as we go through the book, I'm going to just highlight the first thing that Schiller talks about. And the first thing that he talks about is really his Schiller P.E. ratio in the first chapter here, where he's talking about the stock market level performance in a historical perspective. And so what he says, whenever this is written back in the early 2000s, 1990 range, he's saying that, hey, at this current market valuation, you're going to pretty much not get any return over the next 10 years. And so and he was right. And he was exactly right. Yeah. So if we go to 2010 and we look at where the market moved over a 10 year period, it didn't move at all. And he was exactly right whenever he wrote this book. And so that's what he's getting at. And that's what Stig was talking about with this Hussman article. Hussman's looking currently at the market prices and Hussman's saying, hey, at the current market level in 10 years from now, you're going to get a 1% return. If you'd buy the market, say you'd buy the S&P 500 and you just sit on your hands for 10 years, you're going to get a 1% return in 10 years from now. That's what Hussman is saying, Dr. Hussman. Yeah. And he's actually even using Schiller's PE in his argumentation and or apparently there is like a 95% correlation or something. So it actually does explain a lot that uh, Shell P that person I've been talking about. I was really interested in this chapter and also because he kept talking about 1929 and what we could learn from that time period, just as we're talking here in 2015 about what we can learn from 2000. And what he's saying is that the mark was so high in 1929 that it took 29 years for the stock market to recover. So after this chapter, he gets into this discussion of, okay, so why has the market pushed multiples so high? And so the next chapter he gets into, it's called the internet, the baby boom and other events. And what he does is he goes through and he's talking about all these external events that he thinks has potentially manipulated the mind of the market in order to drive these multiples, uh, these valuations so high. And so he goes through each one of those. He talks each one of them in depth and talks about why something may or may have not really kind of led to the market valuations we saw. I think that the internet was such a game changer back in the 90s. And you know, looking back at that from where we're at right now, there was so much excitement and so much expectation built into the fact that, hey, you could start your own online business, reach a market of the world, and something that we hadn't seen from you know previously, where you basically had to have a brick and mortar store where your only market size was the number of cars that drove past the store. This was a game changer. And this is something that was definitely adding to the multiples that were being paid on companies. Now, one really quick highlight before I throw it over to Stig is Greenspan didn't help things at all. If you go back and you look at bond yield curves from 1996, I want to say, or 1995 to the, the peak of the bubble in 2000, that yield curve was completely flat at, I want to say, like 6%. I mean, this is all off the top of my head, so I might be wrong, but it was around that number. And he let it flat. He just let those interest rates stay right there. He didn't even raise them for like four or five years. He just let it sit. So what do you think is going to happen if you got all this excitement, you're not raising rates or tightening, it's going to continue to go wild. And that's exactly what happened. So I think Greenspan was very guilty in the fact that he was not tightening anything. He was allowing it to occur for a very long extended period of time. Go ahead, Stig. Yeah, before I actually transition into my, my point, I just have a quick note on Greenspan. I think, I know it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, but I think his 
main mistake was that he wanted the stock market to be a driver. And that's definitely not how I see it. I don't see the stock market as being a driver for the economy. I see the stock market as being the end result of a well-run economy, not the other way around. And if you rely on the stock market to drive the economy, you're simply just creating bubbles, which will help no one in the, in the long run. But my main point was actually that what Schiller does, and he doesn't do that in chapter two, but in chapter five, but that doesn't matter. He's really comparing what happened in 2000. Again, he's comparing that to what happened in 1928 and 1929, when he's saying this is a new economy because the arguments back then, and he uh, actually quotes Moody, the, uh, the founder of Moody's from 1929, who is saying, yeah, I know that the stock market is really high right now, but we are transitioning into a new era, a new economy. So that's why we can justify having these high valuations that we had back then. So he was saying that, well, we have new techniques for production. So he was referring to forged production lines. We are starting to advertise differently. This will create demand. And he was also saying that we have tax cuts. All of these changes justifies that we have the high multiples that we have right now. Now, if you rewind uh, back to 1999, like people didn't say Ford's production lines, but they were saying something different, right? They were saying the internet and banners and clicks. And everyone thought that, hey, this is a new economy. That's why we can justify having you know, 100 PEs, multiples. And what Sheila was basically saying is that, no, we can't. If we had a single company that had access to the new technology and other companies haven't, he might want to invest in that company. But it's not like you can say, if everyone starts to use a new technology, then the world will just, you know, from one day to the other, justify a more than a doubling in stock prices from an average level. That's, that's just not going to happen. Stig brings up a great point. And this idea of multiples is such an important discussion for people to have if they want to understand any type of expectation that they have on getting a return. So let's look at today's market. Let's talk about Amazon, which is usually a topic that we enjoy going over. What's the multiple on Amazon right now? So if you own Amazon and you can't answer the question, that's not a good thing. You need to know this. So Amazon, the multiple is close to a thousand. I would say a normal multiple on a stock is a 15. So what do you get when you have a multiple of a thousand? Okay. That's a 0.1% return. 0.1%. That's like nothing. Now, the reason people are paying so much for Amazon is because they have this expectation that the revenues are going to continue to go wild and that's going to continue to get bigger. So it's not in a steady state condition. But with Amazon, you would really have to have some just insane amount of growth to be able to justify a multiple of 1,000. I think you bring up a good point here, Preston, when you're talking about Amazon and how it might be valued based on revenue instead of how much money they're making. And I just can't help thinking about PayPal, which is another one of these companies that emerged back then when they were making no money at all. Actually, back then, PayPal paid $10 for every new customer. You were actually getting paid to become a new customer of PayPal. And that customer generated, I don't know how much revenue. And then PayPal was sold based on that multiple. I'm not saying PayPal a bad company or anything. It's just a problem if you start valuating a company based on the revenue and not on the bottom line, because in the end, it's the profit that company is generating that flows back to you as an owner. Revenue is great, but if you have higher costs, what does it help? 
at the end of the day, it all comes back to, you know, you can hold on to a company for five, 10, but eventually it will always come down to what's the net income profit of this company. And that's what it's going to be traded on. So real fast with PE ratios, I want to give people a little tip. So if the PE ratio is a 15, what does that mean? What in the world does that mean? So it's actually 15 over one. So that means that you're paying $15 to own $1 of earnings in a one-year period of time. That's what that means. So if the PE is a 25, that means you are paying $25 to earn $1 of earnings one year later. So Amazon, a PE of 1,000, you're paying $1,000 to earn $1 of profit one year later. That's what that means, folks. So when we're saying these multiples, a lot of the times we just throw these things around and we don't really break it out for you. But for the beginner who's out there listening to us, that's what that stuff means. That's why it's so important for you to know your terminology before you get involved in any type of financial market, because it'll eat your lunch if you don't know what you're talking about. So that's really important stuff for people to understand. Moving on, because we talked about that one probably way too long, but let's go to the next chapter. And we're just kind of just picking through this is uh, the high points that we saw real fast. In chapter three, he talks about the amplification mechanisms naturally occurring in Ponzi schemes. I felt like this chapter resembled a lot of the alchemy of finance by George Soros, who's also a, one of the billionaires that we talk about from time to time. George Soros wrote this book. It's called The Alchemy of Finance. And really kind of the whole theme of the book is that success breeds more success and the psychological piece of that. Fallbacks or um, shortfalls breed more shortfalls. And that's what he's really getting into in this chapter is if a company's doing really well or the perception that the company's doing really well, that means that they can now go out and get additional funding, even though they might not be doing all that well. If the perception is that they're doing well, they can now secure more, more funds. The fact that they got more funds means that they now might have the opportunity to actually perform better, which then would allow them to even grow more. That's the whole theme and the whole thesis of the alchemy of finance by George Soros. And that's what he's really talking about in chapter three in this Robert Schiller book. The next chapter he talks about is the news media. Love this discussion because I totally agree with him where news media has this ability to basically amplify things as well. It's really funny to me when I'll pull up, call it Fox Business or the Wall Street Journal or whatever. And in the morning, they'll have this theme that's tied to how the market's performing. Let's say the market's way up. They'll say, oh, this news event or whatever was what caused the market to go screaming higher. Later in the day, the market will just out of nowhere start moving lower. Maybe let's just say it goes in, into the negative territory. Really no news story whatsoever. And you'll see these journalists go start tying, oh, the negative performance of the market was due to event whatever. And <laughs> that event might have happened before the other event, which brought it up. And so you can see that the media is literally looking, what's the performance? And now let me backfill that performance with whatever story has happened in the last 24 hours. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in over 20 strategic locations. 
They have extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. If you're looking for the right franchise concept at the right time, an iFlex Stretch Studio franchise is the business for you. iFlex is the newest franchise concept from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. With over 200 licenses already awarded to our regional developers, there's never been a better time to own an iFlex franchise in your market. An iFlex Stretch Studio franchise offers its clients the best in professional-assisted stretching for one affordable price in one beautiful location. Even the Mayo Clinic says stretching can increase flexibility and improve your joint's range of motion, helping you move more freely. Prime regional developer opportunities and franchise locations are going fast. Don't miss this opportunity to get into this rapidly growing health and wellness business from the founders of the Joint Chiropractic. Find out more today. Call 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Call right now, 888-994-3539 or visit iFlexPodcast.com. Say goodbye to complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping. And say hello to an advantage with USPS Ground Advantage shipping from the United States Postal Service. Every business faces challenges, but shipping shouldn't be one of them. So keep things simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges for Saturday deliveries, residential deliveries, or fuel. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there helping you counter the rising costs of doing business with a budget-friendly alternative and keep things reliable with on-time ground shipping, ensuring your shipments get to where they need to go while maintaining your hard-earned reputation. USPS Ground Advantage is your ticket to easy, cost-effective, and dependable shipping. It's the complete delivery service your business needs to rise above the competition. There's never been a better time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com slash advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. All right, back to the show. It's a really cheap way of producing journalism. He compares this to sport. He said, well, you can always come up with some kind of stories you're saying. You know, it's, it, it's because we have a great linebacker or a great quarterback, what, whatever. That's the reason why you see these swings, ups and downs. And it's just like a game where you consistently have a new score. And it's very easy just to spin a new story on that and put it as something that is new and something that's important. And he's basically just blaming the, the media for a lot of the hysteria that you experience in, in the financial markets. So I'm going to jump to this chapter six, new eras and uh, bubbles around the world. And this is where Schiller's talking about how the market basically values businesses and how these bubbles definitely exist. Um, he, he gives some proof on why bubbles exist, why bubbles will continue to exist. You know, I think my personal opinion, I think Ray Daly has one of the best discussions on this where he talks about how credit cycles are the reason that bubbles exist. But Schiller gets into it a little bit differently. The thing I would like to discuss, though, as we look at the current market condition, and I really want to throw up a chart on our show notes to show people one of these ideas, is the idea of margins. And how when you look at a company's margin, it's actually a very good indicator of how the market's performed over the last 10 to 20 years and an expectation moving forward. 
So let's talk about this in a, a little bit more of depth so that people understand where we're going. So let's say that your top line revenue is $100,000 on a business and your bottom line revenue is $10,000 on that $100,000 of sales. That means your profit margin is 10%. Okay. So everything that you brought in from your sales, you're able to pocket and profit 10% of that. Okay. So across the board, when you look at these, this margin, if you go back to the 1980s, the margins were a lot thinner. Now the margins have been growing and expanding with each credit cycle and each boom bust cycle. So in this last one, margins got as high as 12%. And now it's looking at it from an entire index. If you go back to the 80s, I want to say that the margins were around at the high 6%, 7% around that level. And so what you've seen is that these margins have actually grown uh, through time. Now, as we think about individuals buying businesses, why is somebody going to pay a bigger premium for a business? Well, they're going to pay a bigger premium because that margin is growing and expanding. Now, if that margin starts to contract on a macro level, that margin starts to contract, what are people going to do? Are they going to continue to boost up the price and pay more and more and more if the margin's dropping? No. And I would argue that that's a very good indicator that you might be seeing the exact opposite and you're starting to see a contraction occur. So the thing is, is with a 60 basis point movement down with margins, it has always been a precursor in the last like 20 years to a recession that's coming. And right now we're actually seeing that with, with margins on the income statement. And so I've got a chart. We're going to put that chart up on the show notes so people can see that. And this has usually been a pre-indicator by about 15 to 18 months before the recession actually occurs. And we're about I want to say 10 to 15 months from where margins peak. They peaked at around 12%. And now they're, I think they're actually below 10% at this point. But we're going to throw that chart up there so you can actually graphically see this and see what we're talking about. I think that that's a really good discussion to occur based on chapter six of the book where we're talking about these boom bust cycles and how margins play into it. And Schiller talks about it a little bit. We probably talked about it a lot more here on the show than in the book, but I think it's something very important to highlight for people. For the remaining of the chapter, I think I just have two points I want to highlight. The first one is that Chiller is saying, well, I don't think I am wrong when I say that we're in the bubble right now, but obviously I could be wrong because as they say, it's hard to read the label inside the box. And he's saying it's so easy looking back at past events to say, oh, it was so very clear that you saw a bubble here or there were no bubble or whatever. But when you are in the middle of it, it's really, really hard. And then he's actually saying that if you look at all the busts, in the past, it's not like it's a, a linear progression. It's not like, yes, the stock market went up for 30% like that year and there were no months they were down. It wasn't like that. The stock market was going up and down every day for like long periods, even though you were building up a bubble. So even though that you will experience a bubble right now as he projected and as what he was completely correct in, it is not so easy to see when you're in the middle of it. That was basically just what he's saying. And that's also what I think Preston I is saying right now, that we might be in a bubble, we might see a crash. But even so, it's hard to see because then we have the strongest October, but September was bad or whatnot. It's just really, really hard depending on which type of time frame that you have. My last point, and that's the point that he has in the final chapter, is that he is saying to the Fed back then, and this was like in the 1999-2000 time frame, I would really suggest that you hike rates and address specifically that the reason why you should hike rates is because the stock market is overvalued because that might be the only thing that could not prevent a bubble but make the transition more smooth. 
And if I can give like one advice to Janet Yellen that would probably not listen to it at all, I would say the same thing. Hi, Gretz, and say this is to avoid speculation. Okay, so here's the thing, guys. We went through the book really quickly. There is 11 chapters in this book. We have an outline of all of our notes from each chapter. If you want to get our outline of our notes for this book and for any other book that we read, go and sign up on our email list. We don't send any marketing, you know, spam, any of that stuff. We basically send out our book summaries, and that is it with our notes on the current market conditions. So if you want to get on that list, go sign up on our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. You can see a link there right at the very top to get on our email list. The other thing, we read all of our books through Audible's. If you want to download your first book for free, literally no obligation, download your first book for free. If you don't want to get anything else, just cancel it right there and you'll get a free book. Go use our link on our website, any of the links on our website for Audibles, and you can download your first book for free. Some of these books are like $40 to buy the Audible books. So go ahead, buy the most expensive book you want that you've wanted to read in the longest time by using our link. You can get it completely for free. We highly recommend that. We feel like that's one of our most beneficial and useful tools on the entire site is using that link for Audibles. At this point, we're going to quickly play a question from our audience. So this week's question comes from Yee Yee. Hi, Preston and Stig. My name's Yee Yee. I'm a big fan of your podcast and website. I learned through the lessons and I think I learned a lot, but I'm still a very new investor. So I'm wondering if you guys think using automated investing service like Betterment and Wealthfront is a good idea to start with. I know they mainly deal with ETFs and they manage $10,000 of your funds for free. My question is, I don't know if they can give you a good return. And also, I don't know if it's going to be actively managed and the choice of ETFs they make for you, is that going to be going to get the return I want? But I want to know what you guys think about this kind of account and what kind of suggestions you have for new investors like me. Thank you. All right, Yee Yee, fantastic question. And Stig's going to take this one away. You know, this is uh, something that's really been on my radar for quite some time because I had quite a few emails from people saying, what do you think about something like Betterment or Wealthfront? So I'm really happy that we had a chance also to respond here on the podcast. I think that whenever I look at the website, something is just wrong. And, and I don't want to like pick on a specific company, but I think something seems to be off whenever you start to, what I would like to say, manipulating with math. So on one of these sites, you could see that because the company is using a passive investing strategy, it beats the benchmark by 1.25%. Now, so I looked into what the benchmark is, and that is active managed mutual funds. And that just doesn't make any sense to me that you can say, I have a service that will beat the market, but my benchmark is active managed mutual funds. Like this just seems like such a random benchmark to choose. And also it's a benchmark that obviously is not random because active managed mutual funds perform really bad. Like I would never ever start up a fund saying, okay, so this is my performance compared to Japanese bonds. If I knew that the yen was dropping and bonds was selling at a really, really low interest rate. So I think that might be misleading. So that was like my first red flag. I also think that if you want to invest in ETFs, I'm not really sure it really makes any sense to have someone manage that for you. I think it's somewhat easy to do that yourself. 
I just found another study, and this was actually written by Colin Roach that we have on the podcast a few episodes ago. And he's actually looking at, I think it was uh, Betterment. He's actually saying that the performance of the Betterment aggressive portfolio is 95% correlated to the Vanguard total world index. So I'm just thinking, why would I pay anyone to manage a pool full of ETFs when I can just buy like a world market index? I'm not really sure I see the value added. Like I'm not saying that you shouldn't use advisors. I'm not saying you shouldn't be using active managed funds or whatever that you're doing. But if you buy into something because you want to use ETFs and you want to do it cheap, why not just do it yourself? Because it's so easy to do. My advice would be, if you want to buy the market, you can actually do that for seven basis points. Yeah, I, I see it the exact same way, Stig. I really do. So, Yee, thank you for the question. That was a fantastic question. I know that there were people out in our audience that were uh, asking a very similar question. So uh, we were happy to answer that for you. We're going to send you a free signed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. And for anybody else out there, if you want to get your question played on our show, go to asktheinvestors.com and you can record your question there. If you've got any questions about this episode on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, be sure to use the hashtag TIP65, and that's where we'll go ahead and answer your question there. We truly uh, just love interacting with our audience on Twitter and Facebook and wherever else. So great to see you guys out there. That's all we have for you guys this week. We really enjoyed talking about this book, Irrational Exuberance, with you. And this was at the recommendation of billionaire Wilbur Ross. So with that said, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast. To listen to more shows or access to the tools discussed on the show, be sure to visit www.theinvestorspodcast.com. Submit your questions or request a guest appearance to The Investor's Podcast by going to www.asktheinvestors.com. If your question is answered during the show, you will receive a free autographed copy of the Warren Buffett Accounting Book. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This material is copyrighted by the TIP Network and must have written approval before commercial application.